Vernomatic Productions. Are you ready? Live from the Metal Mayhem Studios in Rochester, New York. We are gold. And heard around the world by metalheads just like you. This is Metal Mayhem ROC. Heavy metal music. Your weekly dose of metal music. Interviews, album reviews, news, and more. Want to be part of the show? Send us a message through our website, MetalMayhemROC.com. Or hit us up on Facebook and Twitter. Search Metal Mayhem ROC. It's getting nice and heavy. And now, welcome tonight's host, John the Vernomatic Verno. Good evening, everybody. As always, Thursday nights, new content drops. Tonight, we got the whole gang back together, and we're continuing our series, The History of Metal. We're tackling the year 1989. I'm going to have Metal Walt and Ian O'Rourke out in just a minute, but first, I just want to remind you to get up to that Metal Mayhem RLC website, check out some of our past episodes. Last week, we had Frank Bellow of Anthrax. A couple weeks ago, Cleveland Thrasher's Destructor was on, and even before then, we had a cool interview with the Janik brothers, the modelers from Niagara Falls that have the relationship with Gene Simmons and the Moneybag Soda. So check that out. Coming up in the next couple weeks, Nigel Glockler of Saxon, Blackie Lawless, and John Bush of Armored Saint and Wasp. They're uh, touring together. They're going to stop by and tell us what's going on. And always remember to sign up for that newsletter. It's our way of staying in touch with you. Before I bring the guys out from the green room, I just want to share a listener email we received at the Metal Mayhem ROC podcast. It's from Mark Zagati of uh, Northeast Ohio. He writes, hey, everyone, I came across the Metal Mayhem ROC podcast when I was searching for a good metal podcast. I've been hooked ever since. The History of Heavy Metal series has been one of my favorites. Well, Mark, thank you for um, taking the time to send us that letter, and uh, it's great to share it with my fellow co-pilots of this uh, history of metal process that we do. Let me get him on here from New Jersey Metal, Walt, and from Central New York in the band Motorlord, Ian O'Rourke. Walt, let's get it going. Start things off. What do we got tonight? 1989. Um, When I reflect back on that, it was about a lot, an abundance of really good debuts, some really, really strong comeback albums by some named artists. And I think uh, there was definitely really, really strong releases from some of the established bands that if you were to look at their discography, you would say, okay, that album is a must-have, a top 10, a top five from that collection. Um, and it came from some of these uh, these great, great bands here. As I mentioned on the outro of eighty. Eight, you had the Moscow Peace Festival, which was big news at the time and what it stood for. And you had the Grammys and the uh, omission of a true hard rock metal artist. So, um, yeah, that's what 80, 89 is all about. So, guys, pick pick a band. Pick a subject. Let's go. Ian, what do you got? I just wanted to point out, too, the one thing with 89, 89 into 90 you could start really seeing with some of the the music that was coming out that post Master of Puppets, post Appetite for Destruction impact that was going on with, you know, you started to see an abundance of thrash bands. You started to see uh, an abundance of bands that were maybe a little more poppy. 
kind of leaning over to the darker side with some of their music. And you start to see that rise in the, um, the death metal that was uh, starting to rear its head. Well, pretty cool stuff. Yeah. Overall. Well, some of the, some of the, the heavier stuff, you know, Exodus came out with that fabulous disaster, but I didn't really see a lot of the heavy stuff coming around. What I saw from my point of view in 1989 was a, how do I say this? A glutton of mediocrity. So I really don't have, there's a few favorites in here, but by this point of my history of metal, I really wasn't picking up any new bands. So I'm going to really lean on you guys to give me and the people out here listening your interpretation, what these bands meant to you. Yeah, I know, Walt, you, you go uh, you go way back with some of these. So why don't we start with you, Walt? Uh, why don't you pick out a band, and what do you ha- what do you have? Let's go with uh, a couple of my favorite debuts from '89, and I want Ian to tell me his opinion on these two. I think my favorite is uh, is Badlands. Right? It was the debut. Uh, Ray Gillen, Jakey e. Lee, Craig Chason, Eric Singer. The band came out of sort of the ashes of a bunch of different groups. Uh, Eric Singer was playing with Paul Stanley around that time. He came out of the Seven Star. Ray Gillen also came out of Black Sabbath Seven Star. And they established this band that in 89 was unique. It, it actually would be perfectly placed in 2022 as well because it was a hard rock, bluesy outfit, had a very vintage sound, reminiscent of the 70s, big hooks, great harmonies, a lot of chilled, different atmosphere in the songs, and it had some ripping solos by Jake. So I think by far that was my favorite of 89. I think the other one that came out was the debut of uh, the Mr. Big, Mr. Big Band, Billy Sheehan, Eric Martin, Pat Torpy, um, you know, uh, Paul Gilbert. Again, another one, ripping guitar solos, progressive, soaring melodic vocals, that typical Billy Sheehan-style bass and just, you know, eight out of ten on that album. Ian, what do you remember about those two bands and those two albums? All right. Badlands, self-titled, right off the bat, a, a personal favorite. Um, you were absolutely correct. Uh, could come out today with no issue at all because of that bluesy hard rock swagger it's got. Would fit perfectly in 1975, 1976, if you had to go backwards. It had just enough chunk and meat to you know to the riffing but jakey lee was just on fire and hearing ray gillen with that voice just scorching over the top was magnificent mr big i remember when addicted to that rush came out that was unreal not since seeing sheehan and vi do a double solo together with roth had I seen anything like that when they did that intro to Addicted to That Rush, it was just phenomenal. And another great album. You did hit it right on the head with that one. Yeah, and and listen, um, I mean, Addicted to That Rush, uh, Mr. Big, Rush took him out on their Presto tour, the whole tour. Um, so they got an exposure to, you know, a classic rock progressive band audience, um, which was great in and of itself, you know, to see a double bill there. I saw two or three shows on that tour. Um, yeah. So, Vern, what are your thoughts on on those bands or any others around that time? Much respect for Badlands. I discovered them later on. Really wasn't, you know, into them then. And Mr. Big, you know, that was didn't really do anything for me. I'm not a musician, so I couldn't take that angle. So, um, you know, t- to answer that question, that's some of the stuff 
another yeah. band, another debut that kicked ass that got a bad, bad uh, labeling as a hair band was Skid Row. Absolutely yes. love that debut. Uh, Make a Mess, 18 in Life, I Remember You. Now, a power ballad, but not all, you know, sappy power ballad. Back then, Rachel Bolin with the uh, the earring, mm-hmm. and, you know, back then, that was like... <laughs> with the chain. Yeah, it's like, wow, what a freak. You know, that was even before Hoops. <laughs> but, I, you know, I love sure. that band. Now, when you commented on Rush, Rush came around with that Presto album, and at the time of my life, um, I've been, I'm a huge Rush fan, like we all are. But I never got off board with Rush. All through the 80s, I love all that stuff. And I did see that Presto, they released that show of hands later on, the live album in there. I remember the Presto tour, they had the big bunny rabbit that popped up. And I think that tour, they may have broken out with some vintage, like between the wheels or something, some deep cuts on there. They're moving back into playing some of that stuff. So that that album, uh, that album was good, and I think it was known as like the Turning Corner album. They kind of were putting to rest their uh, synthesizer era of the '80s sound, and even though it was still light on the sound, it had a little more acoustic guitar on it, a little bit more rock. The the sound of quality of the album is a little bit thin, and it's got. I think side one is is really really good. Side two has got a couple, but not great. But definitely a great tour, and I think it turned a corner for them back into that rock avenue. So no doubt it was a memorable one for me, at least. Again, seeing Mr. Big opening up, who can uh, who can ever forget Eric Martin up there saying during the sort of the the crowd sing along on the last song of the show, addicted to that rush. He would say, "Okay, New Jersey, are you addicted to Rush?" And then the crowd would go crazy, and they seeing would seeing would solo, and then they would end the song, and that was it. But, nice. hey, guys, we forgot one on the debuts. Uh, Blue Murder. John Sykes, Carmine Apice, Tony Franklin, you know, just that big guitar and uh, Valley of the Kings and Jelly Roll with a clarinet and uh, just good stuff, man. A trio making all that sound. I mean, it's just a shame that that was one of those bands that just never really hit it big, even though they had a couple more albums come after that. That album to me is what I remember, Mr. Uh, uh, you know, Blue Murder as. They got an opening slot for the Billy Squire King's X tour, which I did see at the Ritz, which was a cool one. But just a really cool little Tony Franklin, I think, Ian, you being the musician, Tony Franklin had a very unique bass style, you know, not similar to Billy Sheehan, but unique in a way that Billy Sheehan had his own sound. So did uh, Tony Franklin. Yeah, he was huge. He, he played fretless bass. So it had a very, you know, if you've ever heard Bumblefoot, who's a modern guitar player, he does a lot of fretless guitar stuff. And it sounds a lot like, um, almost like a downtuned sitar. You know, it's got a lot of slidey notes all over the place. Blue Murder, the song Blue Murder itself is is a freaking screamer. That was a great album. The other one was the uh, debut from Extreme. You know, and what better way to introduce and usher in another great guitar god, Nuno Betancourt. I remember just hearing, you know, Flight of the Wounded Bumblebee and things like that. And it was just one of those things that kind of blew your mind. You're like, who is this guy? This is insane. And then by the time they come out with the next album, I mean, they're just stratospheric. They just took right off. So good stuff. This album got them on the map, but it's not their biggest, you know, I mean, the no. what's to come next that no. puts them on 
the major map. I mean, they, you know, actually, I remember the video they put out for that mother don't want to go to school today. I thought uh, the lyrics were kind of cheesy in it. And I was like, oh, man, I can't like these guys. But then you go back and you hear like a song like Play With Me or Kid Ego. And you're like, man, you hear Nuno's Nuno's uh, style. And and I'll be the first to admit, I was your typical naive, critical, I don't know. guys are you know whatever and until i saw them at the m3 festival several years back and i saw them really as take away those two ballady songs and what they really are you know much much respect for them you know now verno i want to comment one thing on back to your skid row comments from me being the new jersey new york guy you have to remember what skid row was yes their debut came out in 89 but they were already a household name down this way. They were an underground band in New Jersey, New York, playing the club scene. You know, they had the watchful eye of Bon Jovi, who signed them, took them out on the road. Um, I think they played their debut show in the area uh, after the album was released, opening for Bon Jovi at Giant Stadium with, again, Billy Squire in the middle. And this was a band that they were almost like, like they were in the oven for a lot of years. It was just a matter of when you're going to take that cake out. And, uh, yeah, it was a big one, but it meant a lot to this tri-state area. So that's too too bad. TT Quick, too bad. TT Quick didn't make it that big. I always thought no, they were a they better didn't. band. <laughs> they were pretty good. They played that scene too. Yeah. Uh, here's another uh, another uh, changing course here. Another debut. All right. Um, and this is what is a preview of to come in when we eventually do these next uh, episodes leading into the 90s, the Soundgarden debut. Now, this is a good one, but it was also the beginning of that new uh, down-tuned, darker-style sound. You know, I wouldn't want to say grunge, but you look at the cover of the album, Chris Cornell twisting his hair down. You don't see his face. There's no color on it. But when you look at the material, anybody who likes Black Sabbath or you know, Trouble or uh, St. Vitus or any of those bands with that down-tuned sound can get all over this a- a- album. I mean, the song Gun, the song Loud Love, uh, Ugly Truth, like, Ian, you know, what's your thoughts on that one? I mean, it doesn't quite fit into the, you know, square square peg and a round hole or however it goes, but this was a good one. Yeah, they, um, you know, they before this, they had only really had an EP. It was like a obscure thing that yeah, collectors get. But this album, I mean, the, I remember when the video for Loud Love, them playing it on Headbangers Ball, man, and it was huge. And that freaking voice that he had, I mean, you knew that this this was going to be something different because he had that, it was a Halfordy, girthy scream that he had that came out of his throat. Um, but he just had a timbre all of his own, man. They were they were really freaking great band, you know, when they got started. And you're right. I mean, this was, you know, between them and, you know, the other band that, you know, they're not a metal band by any right, but you know, Nirvana did have Bleach was debuted this same year too. But um we'll give all of our kudos to Soundgarden because they're more in our ball field. Now, Vern, we're taking over the show tonight. We're talking away because you don't have a lot of memories from 89. Come on, pull something out. How about Aerosmith Pump, Vern? Well, uh, I just, again, I it's sort of like I'm I'm like a listener tonight because, you know, I started four or five years before you guys. So by the time a lot of this this stuff came out, I had no interest. Maybe it was my attitude, but, you know, it was just, it wasn't on our, it wasn't on our radar. Uh, he was eight, drinking beer and chasing tail. Don't let him kid you. 
1989, you know, we, we, you know, you know, we're seeing Slayer, we're seeing Testament, you know, we're still not, I don't want to say holding on to that, but that was the lane of the heavy metal boulevard we were on. We we were past that, you know, when stuff like, you know, White Lion came out and, you know, Extreme and, you know, we didn't have any part of it. Maybe because, you know, a too cool for school attitude where you guys were younger, where you embraced it. And that's fine. It was just really the landscape. And when Gary Sharon joined Van Halen, you know, I went back and I tried to listen to the, what's that uh, extreme album? Uh, Pornography. Pornography, yeah. Yeah, and then there's a couple other ones. And, you know, it's just one of those things. A lot of what you connect with is when you're there. You know, it's so... um, so to answer your question, Walt, what what was I digging in 89 on our list? Uh, well, you know, I don't want to say I was digging it, but, um, you know, I did get into the Motley Crue at the time, you know, Dr. Feelgood. That was the first album where they were um, completely sober. You know, by this time, that was the, they all had to be sober. And I didn't mind some of it. Um, shit. Um I was going to say, let's talk about a couple of the comeback albums, right? I mean, you had Alice Cooper's Trash, and you had Black Sabbath's Headless Cross. Those are two. I mean, we interviewed Tony Martin earlier in this mm-hmm. year. Um, so uh, for for our, our listeners, you know, feel free to go back and check that episode out. I think it was February or, or so. Um, I mean, that was a big album. I mean, do you have any memories of that one, Vern? Or, or no, Ian? not, not really. Album? Not really. Again, by 89. I remember when in 86 I was doing the – metal mayhem radio show and i remember eternal idol came out and you know that was the one with with ray get ray gillen on it so in the next year or two or by the time 89 came around you know sabbath was upside down you know i was a victim of oh come on what's going on with sabbath third singer in five years or whatever and you know or whatever it was but yeah, never really, really. Well, what, but what they did that year was that was again. That's why I say it's a comeback album because they did get signed to a major label. They are on, I think, IRS uh, Records. They brought Cozy Powell in to bring some credibility to the band. He co-wrote the songs. Neil Murray went out as a bass player on the tour. They got booked to a national tour, first American tour in a while. Granted, they played clubs. Um, they were huge in Europe, especially in Germany and the UK. And uh, the album is strong, you know. Uh, I mean, the title track, Headless Cross, When Death Calls, Call the Wild, uh, it's definitely one that I look back on with fond, fond memories. Um, and I think it turned a corner for them into into the 90s. Uh, Alice Cooper's Trash, Ian, you had to remember that one. I mean, you know, he teamed up with Desmond Child on that one, but this was definitely a comeback album, whereas the prior two, Constrictor and Raise Your Fist and Yell, they were heavier with Kane Roberts. But this brought that commercial sound back. It got some songs on the radio. It got them bigger tours. And this is kind of like the style that Cooper's been probably since that point in time up to today. What were your memories on, on Trash, Ian? Yeah, uh, Al Petrelli really, really was a – he kind of did a lot to help shift and shape some of the the sound and with some of the songwriting that went on. You can definitely see – there's a transition from what had come before with, you know, Kane Roberts on guitar. That stuff was good. This stuff, you know, trash was, was a really, really good hard rock album. You know, it was, it still had the, 
you know, the moments to allow Alice to have his stories and stuff like that. But it was a really solid hard rock album. And it really made him um, a lot, you know, kind of like with Aerosmith, a lot more uh, radio uh, friendly and approachable in, in, in a lot of instances. Uh, to back up to Headless Cross, I can remember being a kid and there was a show called, um, what the hell, Metal Shop on a local radio station out of Syracuse. And I remember the first time hearing Tony Martin sing that freaking chorus for Headless Cross. I was like, who is this dude? This dude's got some freaking lungs on him. Wow. And that was, that was great. And then uh, Call of the Wild, I love, that's another great song. It's just a, it's a good album, you know, a, a great album really for what it was at the time. It was, it was a, it was a deviation from what Sabbath was in the past with, all of the iconic singers that they had. It was a new, an ushering in of, of a new Sabbath, so to speak. You know, I mean, really the name should have probably stopped being Sabbath after the, the um, born again album and then became the Tony Iommi project, but it is what it is. Yeah. Hey Vern, you know, in fact, checking back to you on the Motley crew, uh, Dr. Feelgood. I mean, let's not forget the massive impact this album had. Dr. Feelgood, Kickstart My Heart, Without You, Same Old Situation, and Don't Go Away Mad. I mean, five <laughs> massive, yeah. massive MTV songs. You couldn't get bigger than Motley Crue in, 80, in 89, right? I agree. Like I said, it was their sober album. And a lot of those sure. songs were, well, Kickstart. The, the, you know, that's played that's at every... Killer. Yeah, every sporting event out there. Girl, don't go away mad. All these songs are still in their, you know, their set list to this day. SOS yeah. and isn't Rattlesnake Shake on there? And Yes. Yeah. yeah. and um, Rattlesnake Shake. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so, you know, it was, um, it, it was a fun album. You know, what people always give, the only point of Crew's career that I had a problem with Really was theater that of pain. theater of pain, girls, girls, girls. It was a little thin. There was a little bit of thil- filler in there, but knowing what we know now with the landscape of the band and their, you know, yeah, yeah, whatever they were doing. <laughs> so you know, the crew wasn't bad back then. Uh, sure. Now there is a couple other ones on the heavier side of stuff, like sabotage with gutter ballet. Not bragging, but got into them from the beginning. So gutter ballet was. Um, you know, they had a couple of those instrumentals on there and the song Gutter Ballet. That was, that was pretty cool. When did, when did uh, Chris die? 1993. Oh, okay. Right. Sort of lost touch with them. And, you know, and by 89, um, Tesla, you know, the great radio controversy. Edison's Medicine, baby. Heaven's Trail. That was a, that was a big album, that, that Tesla album. I mean, and a great album. Not just yeah. for the hits and the radio hits, but just a great album all the way through. Hang Tough, Lady Luck. I mean, they were kind of at their peak. They were doing some headlining there. And uh, to me, that was a really memorable album. And Vern, I, you know, you didn't touch too much on the Sabotage Gutter Ballet, but I really think kind of call a lot more attention to that one. I mean, yeah, it was a change of the sound on that one, but this is when Paul and Neil came into the band. Came into the band and it, it they started getting that orchestration sound in there. A lot of acoustic guitars. The storyline that would come with Streets. It was the crafting in the beginning of the Trans Siberian Orchestra. But that album is just totally killer, man. That that's like one of those 
top 50 metal albums to me when you look back at it. A Rage of War, the title track. I mean, when crowds are gone, if that one doesn't put a little tear in your eye, oh, yeah. you, you don't got any emotion in that one. Again, and it was you, just, again I'm, I was guilty of I loved the early stuff so much. Right. That, you were out of things. Yeah, I lost interest. It wasn't sure. it was like, nah. It wasn't because those those first three, well, two and a half, you know, sirens and um Dungeons, Dungeons are calling, calling and then Power, Power of the Night. You know, that stuff you didn't have to maybe sure. it was a little thinner, not not the uh production, but just you didn't have to think too much for it to hit you. You know, right. you know, rage, twisted little sister, sirens. That stuff, sure. one listen, and you're you know thumping along, singing it. Right. But I could appreciate. So it's well, it's not like I didn't you know go deeper. I didn't know deeper. You know, I I didn't know deeper. But I just remember those instrumentals. And hey, there's some heavy metal homework. Maybe um. Go- Here's the thing they they always have had a uh, a linear kind of thing like uh, Queens did. You know, we talked about this before, Vern. Yeah. That first DP that came out, that just freaking ripped everybody's faces right off. You know, you're listening to that and you're like, who the hell are these guys? And they come out with the warning and the warning has got a lot of great stuff on it. But by the time they get into rage, we discussed this. They started to have, yep. there's little bits, of, you know, proggy stuff coming in. Things are getting a little bit different. They're starting crafting, but then they come out with the, the, the wall, you know, the next one, the big one right then. Um, Sabotage was a lot like that. You know, they were, it was almost like stepping stones mm-hmm. up to Hall of the Mountain King. And when they did Hall and they started, you could start to see this expansive musicality just starting to go and blow up. And then Gutter carried it to uh, yeah. streets. You know, I mean, they're just great albums all the way yeah. around. There. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I love them. Um, Overkill, Years of Decay. I love that. one. <laughs> fucking overkill you know i've seen him a zillion times your boys yeah. from uh jersey yeah oh yeah well, new jersey well new jersey and new york combined i mean bobby bliss lives in jersey but yeah yeah combination yeah. well when you know the uh, five boroughs tri-state area you know that's the whole thing the, now that band changed after gustafson left you know yes so, so um, but they probably put 25 albums out of the same <laughs> album, but every one of them is good. So you can't ever, there's no bad overkill album, bottom line. Because you always have, you know, the, you always have Blitz leading it. It's yeah, always the Elimination <laughs> and Skull Crusher. Oh, Skull Crusher is such the a fire And Evil Never Dies. I mean, come on. That one, I mean, all those songs are on this album. Yeah, I know. Totally killer. All we, right. One of the bands we appreciate mutually are King's X and I will geek out a little bit here but to me uh, 89 is when they released uh, their signature album Gretchen Goes to Nebraska I mean in my honest opinion this is their signature album it's perfection all the way through from tracks 1 through 12 it's got it all it's got the heaviness it's got the vocals it's got the melodies it's got the acoustic guitar I could put that album on today like I did 30-something years ago, and it still brings me goosebumps. What, what was your take on that album, Ian? You know, and the best part about it, you know, we touching back what we were saying with uh, Soundgarden, how they were helping to usher in. You could almost see where King's X had a toe 
in that water just a little bit. You know, when things were transitioning into the grunge era, King's X was one of the bands that was still cool for everybody to like because they were dark, they were heavy. They had this certain kind of melodicism, very uh, Beatlesque, you know, when it came to some of the things they were doing. And the guitar playing from Ty Tabor is just out of this world. You know, they're a, a freaking great band all the way around. And hopefully they're going to present us with some new music soon. So yeah, I've heard of three tracks and they're all pretty good so far. So, hey, Verno, yeah. uh, we've talked about Kiss in the past. What about what's your take on Kiss's Hot in the Shade? Hot in the 1990. Sh- Did you see that tour? That was a great tour. Uh, you know, I, I didn't see the tour. One, because it was a short tour and they played Weedsport that night. But I had to go with my boys Metallica. Metallica was playing too, so I I went to the Metallica show instead. Um, you, want, I, you didn't want to see the Sphinx that had lasers come out of the eyes. You wanted to see Metallica over the Sphinx. What's wrong with you? <laughs> well, none of us blame you. <laughs> well, no, it, hot in the shade. That tour didn't they open with "I Stole Your Love"? That was the that was the tour. They went back to pulling out all the deep tracks. They played like a two hour show. They had Slaughter. And Little Caesar opening up. It was a, it was a cool tour. Lots oh, good songs. Yeah, yeah no, but that was okay. Nothing great, but it was a return of Kiss to me. No, great but to see him live again. I thought they opened with "I Stole Your Love." They, they did. They he, very much did open with "I Stole Your Love." And there was another chestnut that they broke out. Like I know they oh. played "I Want You." I Want You was on that the, tour. I think "God of Thunder" came back. Maybe uh, I think it was, was "I Want You." I, yeah, th- that was the only Kiss tour that I've missed since. 82, 83, Creatures. Saw Creatures. I saw all of them. I saw Revenge. And then, you know, everything up until, well, they've had so many tours. But you you know what I mean? It's like album tours. Sure. Uh, Not the greatest hits tours. (laughs) Well, you know, but, you know, whenever they were tour for an album. Um, Sure, sure. I think it's gotten to a point now where a lot of these bands are doing these culminations of small tours linked together to get a year's worth of, of promotion and playing out of it because you can't, you don't have the sustainability like you did back in the day. You know, it's, it's not like it was in the nineties for whatever reason. I don't know why. All right. You want to, want to address the uh, elephant in the room before we went on, we were doing some pre-production, getting some levels like, like, like brothers do things got a little heated and, I felt a little ganged up on, but the <laughs> the issue of Aerosmith Pump uh, came on versus the preceding year's Aerosmith Permanent Vacation. I'm going to pass it along to my brother, Ian O'Rourke, and he's big on Pump. So, Ian, Pump, the stage is yours. Listen, from everything from the production to the way that some of the songwriting was done for the album Pump, I personally preferred over permanent vacation. I didn't like, um, uh, you know, and I went on record previously to state, you know, there were certain songs on there that, that just didn't work well for me. I didn't like the influence that was going on to try to make them into something that was going on at the time where with pump, I feel that it's a little bit more return to form of the sound of Aerosmith. It's got a little bit more of that kind of swagger, to it, yeah, there's still, you know, the same kind of uh, creative writing that goes on. But, you know, there's, you know, I just, sound-wise, it just seemed to uh, grab me a little bit more. Walt, 
back me up on this. Yeah, I, I agree with you too. I actually think when I reflect back on both albums, I think these were the two peaks of their uh, comeback. Um, I think the, the thing with Permanent Vacation is I think the album stands up probably pretty close to it, but they were still getting back on the radar. People didn't take them seriously in 87, and they were coming off a Walk This Way thing, and the Toxic Twins were still like, are these guys for real again? You know, sure. originally when they were came back out in 87, they weren't really playing the full stadiums. But, like, 89, they were now back up. They were like a, a fine-tuned car, motor running smooth. And, uh, yeah, I, I think that there's, you know, eight of, ten, uh, eight, eight of ten songs on this album are just completely, completely strong. So it's almost like, you, you know, when you go to a liquor store and you, you have a choice between two really great beers and you buy both of them, and the one is certainly not a letdown to the other. It's like, you know, best and better. That's just kind of how it goes yeah. there, you know? Sure. So kind of like when Ian goes and buys his uh, six-pack of uh, Paps cans. And then he goes and says, I'm going to buy the Yingling. They're both really good, but the Yingling's just a little bit better. Sure. Okay. Um, first of all, Paps isn't good. Listen, I, I wasn't going to say anything, but, you know, but I'll let him roll with it. Listen, I'm doing a little fact-checking here, and Desmond Child on Permanent Vacation was involved with three songs, and on Pump, he was involved with two songs. Okay, yeah. so it wasn't oversaturated with outside no, no. writers. I get where you're coming from. We're not here to bash one or the other. We're here to talk about Pump. Now, right. uh, let's see. The tour. Did we see the tour? I saw Pump. I've seen Aerosmith a gazillion times. Ian, you ever have a chance to see Aerosmith in that era? No, not back then. It was I, they came through um, on the permanent vacation tour. Don't remember. I, I actually believe it might have been Poison that may have been opening up for them at one stretch, and they played. Uh, I think they played the uh, War Memorial in Syracuse. Well, I, I saw that tour at the Meadowlands in New Jersey, and I would say, uh, you know, again, the band was playing in fine form. It was also only the second time I saw them. I was only 19, so I was kind of on that high of Aerosmith. Um, I do believe the show I saw, maybe they took Skid Row out. So, again, they were carrying some good good, uh, yeah. good, good acts. But, again, this was then their, their comeback, you know. So, you know, Vern, it, I think both are really good. I think, you know, sure. both stand up over time. But, Ian, I got to give you credit. You did a F-I-N-E. Fine job in your overview of pump. <laughs> no, oh, I was going to say something when you said they're in fine form. And I'm like, were they in F-I-N-E fine form? Uh, all right, all right, all right. Hey, what about two other bands? Let's break out okay. of the mold, out of our comfort zone. Ian, you put them on the list. The Cult, Sonic Temple, and Faith No More, The Real Thing. Yeah. Right? Very different. But very yeah. big albums these years. Impressions of those? Sonic Temple, I remember because this was like a total deviation from, you know, what uh, they had done before. You know, between Electric and, and some of the other stuff, it still had that kind of, you know, the Cure kind of gothy, you know, Sitari kind of stuff going all over the place. When this came out, this was a total, you know, between uh, – what the hell was that freaking first song there? Uh, Firewoman. I remember when that video came out, and finally you see Billy Duffy on stage rocking that freaking white Les Paul with a Marshall stack behind him. I'm like, there you go. 
now you're doing it right. You know, so then they started, they really had some good momentum on this tour. Uh, the, the music was great. You know, I mean, Chow Edie was another big uh, single off the album. I think Wildflower, right, was on there as well. I mean, there was just a bunch of good hard rock. You know, it kind of had a little bit of ACDC, kind of had a little bit of, um, oh, I didn't even re- really can't even describe it. They have, uh, they had a unique sound for a lot of years and they've gone through different stages. You know, they're one of those bands. And to your point, I mean, the real thing, that was huge. You couldn't turn on anything without hearing the song Epic from Faith No More. You know, I mean, it was just, it was big, you know, and that that really kind of put them into a whole other stratosphere at that point. And I guess, I think the fact that Jim Martin was really great friends with Hatfield, every time you would flip open a, a rock magazine or a guitar magazine, there's a picture of the two of them standing together, holding a beer or holding their guitars. You know, I mean, it was just really cool time, you know, and it's like, all right, this is cool when you get to see this kind of shit going on. So. And that was that, like, like the shift in sound to slightly different, you know, changing hard rock sounds. Right. You know, what's yeah. weird about the cult. I always remember back then, and I have much respect. I've seen them a handful of times. I mean, Metallica took them out on that tour in 89, yeah. But I remember then, if you were a metal or hard rock fan, you almost couldn't like the cult because it was like, oh, they're an alternative band. Like they were almost like labeled as like an alternative rock band and not a hard rock band, which was a completely inaccurate statement of them. And I think it was probably because of their, maybe their day, you know, their first albums that came out in the mid 80s, they were played on like that MTV 120 minutes yeah, it wasn't on yeah, Headbangers yeah. Ball. It was really an unfair place for them because they really are a hard rock album. You know, that, that, that's band. funny I, That's funny that you say that because they're sort of like the second cousin. They're not first cousin. Like right. a second cousin's a little too distant. I remember, tell a quick story. I remember back in the day, we had some friends that liked the cult, but they liked like, you know, other bands like that, they went, you know, they pivoted to like Husker Du or Violent Femmes and, you know, stayed on that side of town. And the cult was very close to our side of town. And I saw that Metallica, that Weedsport show with the cult and Metallica and the cult, they do it. They kicked ass. Well, Ian, Ian Asbury is really a really good front man. You know, I mean, when he gets out there, he entertains the crowd. He moves back and forth. He sings to the crowd. He tries to get people involved with stuff. He really makes himself very uh, theatric in his movements and his gestures. So there's always something going on, all these moving parts. And it really makes them a solid live band when you see that, which is cool. Plus, as we discussed before, he jumps in the crowd and stops fights that are going on. So, I mean, he can't be a bad guy. No, no, he just uh, peace and harmony. Um, We got a couple. (laughs) We got a couple more, but let's talk about the big one. White Snake, slip of the tongue with um, with (laughs) with Steve Vai. Now, did Vai record or he just toured? No, he did everything. Yeah. Yeah, because Vandenberg was injured. Um, he had had some kind of tendon injury or something that he had to have surgery. And he stepped in and, and did a, a majority of the writing with Dave. There was some stuff that Vandenberg had started off, but Vi ended up recording all of the, uh, all of the guitars, uh, for the album, you know, which was something that Vandenberg's touched on later. And, you know, I, 
it's a great album. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of good stuff on there. When uh, when that song Judgment Day comes on, boy, I mean, the cashmere, <laughs> cashmere vibe, the chills go up your neck, yeah. the floor drops out. It's like, wow, that's just killer. Cheap and so nasty, Kitten's Got yep. claws, claws, Judgment Day. Uh, what yeah. else is on there? That Sailing yeah. Ships, that's a freaking majestic yeah. song. Uh, there, the Deeper the, the Love. Awesome. I mean, is yep. there ever been a band that has made power ballads like cool in a way than David Coverdale in his prime. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I don't know. I have a soft spot. Uh, the aforementioned buddy of mine, Kale Jammer. That's another band. We went to go see a lot. And sure. David, David Coverdale, man, just like to uh, quote the late Stuart Scott from ESPN. He was cooler than the other side of the pillow. You know, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. He was just yeah. like he would go to the front of the stage. Cheers, Rochester. Hope everyone's enjoying themselves this evening. Right. Where he had to play and he a was lot like of- that up until he's up until now when he had to stop tour. You know, he'd still do it. Great guy. Great freaking band. King Diamond Conspiracy. Again, another band. I will admit it. Some of those late '80s after Abigail and them sort of lost track. You guys are a little more up to speed. What's the what's the conspiracy? Conspiracy. Go ahead, Wall. Jump on it, baby. You take it. Uh, I, I mean, uh, I don't have any like real connection or affinity to it, but I think it's a good one. I do recall the album cover maybe being a little different. It didn't have the imagery. It actually had King's face on it, which might have been a first for the time. Mm. So, uh, but you know, it was another one of those storylines. He was just uh, it was it was expected of him at that point in time. I don't know, Ian. Do you have any uh, any affinity for this one? You know, knowing afterwards, you know, or when you would hear the stories on it, the continuation of the stories going back to them, you know, this is that that elaboration on the story. But, you know, songs like Sleepless Nights, man, I mean, that's just every time I hear it, you know, it's just it's one of those riffs that it just kind of it just grabs you right in the chest. It's like, you know, I mean, anything that King has done. I got no problem with (laughs) I love King, you know, just like I love. I know. we all love King. Yeah, yeah, just, and just like you know. love Pabst Blue Ribbon. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So now I got to start drinking Pabst Blue Ribbon. <laughs> well, you know, we could go on all night with a lot of this, but you know, I think we agree. Nineteen eighty nine, where uh, the eighties are coming to an end. We all know what's on the future. What's in the future? Uh, guys, any other bands you want to mention, or it's just uh, I think we covered most of them. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, uh, when you look- the. Uh, Go ahead. No, I was going to talk about uh, two of the events, the non-band. Oh, yeah, events yeah. Of '89. Sure. So we could talk uh, about the uh, maybe the memorable concert of the year, the Moscow Peace Festival. Um, you guys uh, recall that one? Tune the Russian yes. band Gorky Park. Yep, all the all the troublemaker bands wasn't didn't they do that because Doc McGee got busted instead of going to jail he had to do a big concert to pay money. All I remember was when MTV reporting on it, you didn't hear about it at the time. Later on, uh, who the hell was it? Uh, Adam Curie saying that Ozzy's you know dancing back and forth. And all of a sudden, he just kind of stops, and he said, he goes, when you look down, he had pissed his pants. You know, he was that out of it that he, you know, just pissed his pants. And I'm like, Jesus Christ. Yeah. I said, I go, that plane trip must have been a freaking hoot. I can imagine. 
Skid Row, Gorky Park, Cinderella, Motley Crue, Ozzy, Scorpions, Bon Jovi. Wow. All in, what, a day or two? It's a hell of a lineup. Those were the biggest bands in the world at the time. And I think it was still the Cold War then, right? Because I don't remember when they took the wall down when Roger Waters did that concert. I don't know if it was the year before or the year after, but it was right around that time. So it definitely had and that, you know, winds of winds of change from the Scorpions. It, it took on a whole nother meaning at that show. Yeah, right? this was I think this was just after the fall of the wall, because that was part of the promotion behind it was that solidarity and unity and blah, blah, blah. Um, it, it was it was a huge thing. You know, it was a real huge thing, you know, and, you know, look at the stuff that it led up to, you know, when you actually had those Monsters Rock tours that came into Moscow later. You know, 90, you had Priest with Pantera. 91, you got Metallica. I mean, you know, th- those are, you know, it just started to explode from there. So, and those were legendary shows. So, good stuff. And then what was your last one you wanted to talk about? Well, the last point was uh, we don't want to end on a bad note, but we we, we really, it should be in every hard rock metal fan's brain, the uh, infamous uh, embarrassment of the Grammys and how they gave the award not to Metallica, but to... Jethro Tull. No disrespect, because I have all the respect in the world for Ian Anderson and Jethro Tull. Of course. But what? No. It it just proves that the Grammys, no, uh, you know, shit. I know. I know. So, but know. let's not talk about them anymore. Uh, well, uh, wrap this up. What do you uh, What do you see in the future? What's 1990 doing? So 1990, you have, uh, you still have some uh, really good releases by main bands, I think. But as Ian captured so eloquently and perfectly in the beginning of the show, it's also the shift of the sound to a more fragmented sound. You got thrash bands coming in. Um, and it's definitely the typical hair 80s MTV bands are really starting to fade out little by little here. Um, yet again, there's still some releases in 90 that uh, from bands like Cinderella, really, really good stuff. Um, so it just it's a good year, but just doesn't have you know a high memory about it. 90, re- for me, I remember there was a great package tour of thrash bands that went around. The Clash of the Titans, we could talk about that one. And then, and then the opening band there was a new Seattle band, not at Soundgarden, but somebody else. And then there's the, maybe the non-musical release incident was um, the big lawsuit uh, out in California with Judas Priest that got uh, global headlines, right? And uh, and what's to come from their album that got released later that year. So definitely a lot of really, really good, insightful stuff coming to you in a few weeks on 1990. Before we close out, I've got one last thing to say, and this is for all of our listeners and all of our friends on the Metal Mayhem radio show that think that I don't like death metal. Carcass symptoms of sickness, morbid angel altars of madness, obituary slowly we rot, and sepultura beneath the remains. These are four albums that I have a very deep affinity for from the day. And these are some of the originators. So I just wanted to make sure I give a shout out to them for all of those friends of the heavier stuff that don't think I have an appreciation for it because I do. Uh, all right. Well, it looks like, uh, you know, Ian had to get something off his chest and had to go to heavy metal, heavy, heavy metal confession. All right, guys. Thanks for uh, coming around tonight. It's always a pleasure seeing you guys. We'll be back 
ASAP with the history of metal, the year 1990. Again, just remember, get up to that website, sign up for the newsletter, come into our community. The fall of uh, 2022, we have a lot of stuff planned, and we want you to be part of it. For my brothers in metal, Ian O'Rourke and Metal Walt, I'm the Vernomatic. We'll talk to you guys real soon, and always remember, keep it heavy. Metal for Life. Thank you for listening to Metal Mayhem ROC. Check out our website at MetalMayhemROC.com for information on podcasts, archives, links to all our live radio shows, and all sorts of info. Please like, follow, and share with everyone, even your non-metal friends. And always remember to keep it heavy. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.